Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 11. Hello, everybody. My name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Acton-Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each week on the Life of the School podcast, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and talk about how it is they got in the classroom, what it is they're working on, and what they hope to be doing in the future. Uh, this week, I'm fortunate enough to sit down with Lindsay LaCaire. Lindsay is a biology teacher at Andover High School in Andover, Massachusetts. For nine years, Lindsay has taught biotechnology, forensics, biology, chemistry, and anatomy and physiology. Last spring, Lindsay was awarded a hundred fun grant for advanced biotech equipment. Lindsay credits uh, the broader Andover community for their continued support, including grants from the Corbett Grant, Punchard Grant, AHS Parents Advisory Council, Andover Coalition for Education, and the Andover Educational Improvement Association. Lindsay is very engaged in helping her students with real-world science experiences that extend beyond the walls of her school building. These include taking forensics classes to behind-the-scenes tour with Andover detectives, initiating the BioBuilder Synthetic Biology Club, bringing the biotech students to Pfizer to visit where the Prevnar pneumococcal vaccine is produced, and leading her students through the Wabaki Project. You can follow Lindsay on Twitter at, at AHSBiotech, where she occasionally tweets about her work. Lindsay graduated from Stonehill College in 2006, where she received a degree in biology and earned her MED from Salem State University in 2011. Welcome, Lindsay. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great. So it's uh, it's funny, I... I uh, I, we ran into each other last spring. I think it was the first time we actually talked to each other uh, when I had a group of students at the Museum of Science and you were looking into potentially getting involved with BioBuilder. And then we ran into each other and you'd think our conversation would have been nothing but talking about synthetic biology and BioBuilder. And instead, we just talked about uh, Wabakia. Um, <laughs> and then we. Somebody else who understands. Yeah. And then we spent like, I think the next like month and a half tweeting at each other and emailing each other about troubleshooting Wabakia and. How do you do this and out of that? And that was great. And so uh, right around that time was when I was putting together my podcast list. And uh, you were on the, you were very high up in my podcast list of people <laughs> I wanted to talk to because we had had the, all these conversations. So um, it's, it's, it's funny, a little bit funny for me because, you know, the last couple of people who I've interviewed are people who... I've known in one way or another for, you know, six, seven, you know, 10 years. I mean, my first podcast was Brian, who I've worked with for 17. And I was realizing when I was putting this together that, like, I've known you for like six months, but I, I'm really happy that you could sit down and talk because we are very physically close to each other. Um, and I think uh, educationally, we're also pretty close to each other. So it's, uh, it's exciting to, to sit down and talk. So. Yeah. That, and I think that's one of the great things about the BioBuilder program, too, that, you know, that we'll talk about a little bit later is that it, it brings together teachers that are, you know, able to be involved in some of the newest stuff that's out there. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, I'm going to kick it off with my first question I like to ask everybody, which is, how did you become a science teacher, and what was your path into the classroom? I was one of those kids that always wanted to be a teacher. You know, people would say that they didn't want to be, that they didn't know what they wanted to be, and, and I always felt like, well, I've got my life all figured out. I'm going to be a science teacher. Um, especially once I got into middle school, I had a teacher there. His name was Mr. Beninati. He was my seventh grade science teacher. I think one of the hard things about teaching middle school is that you, you have to not leave some of the learners behind while also giving you know, some of the other kids something to chew on at the same time. And he was really good at, at differentiating and scaffolding and giving me something to chew on. Um, he, he was one of the first classrooms where I felt like I, I had a chance to figure out how to learn and, and to teach myself. And I think a lot of my classmates felt the same way. Um, so if I wasn't necessarily decided on science. It, it was that year that made me realize that, that science was the path that I wanted to go into. Um, the more that I learned about science and biology, and as I progressed through college, I, I thought, you know, maybe I wanted to go deeper into biology and, and go on maybe to get my you know, PhD and do research. But after college, I started working in an immunology lab at, mm -hmm. at Mass General, which was amazing. Um, it had researchers in there, you know, PhD, the postdocs, and um, the uh, principal investigators and collaborating with people from all over the world to do different kinds of innate immunology research. Mm -hmm. um, innate immunology being how your body responds to non-specifically to, mm -hmm. to different kinds of infections. Um, and it was an incredible experience to collaborate with all those people and learn how to work in a lab and what it's like to do cell culture and, mm -hmm. and protein purification and you know drug manufacturing. But I really miss the interaction with students. 
because mm -hmm. I had done some, you know, student teaching um, going into schools while I was in college, and I had done a little bit of that in, in high school, and I really missed that. So as much as I love the biology, I had to get back into the classroom. Right. Uh, so I saw there was a, it was actually midway through the school year that there was a chemistry position that opened up in Marblehead, Mass, and I, I couldn't pass it up. I jumped right on it and never looked back. Oh wow! So do you you jumped in? You would not were you not certified at the time, or had you taken care of certification? No, I wasn't. They had to get a waiver for me. <laughs> so yeah, I, I got yeah. my first teaching job. Um, it's, it's really fascinating because you know it, we occasionally at at Acton Boxborough have times where we, you know, for whatever reason somebody moves or something happens, and we end up having to fill a job um, in the middle of the year, and the anxiety and angst about hiring somebody in the middle of the year is always hard because it is a it's it's very much a luck of the draw. And, you know, Marblehead got very lucky um, that, you know, it was you that they got on somebody who was walking into a path that was going to lead to being a, a teacher. But I know it's a, it's a definitely a point of anxiety, uh, you know, the few times we've had to put something out in the middle of the year where people are like, oh, what are we going to do? Um, but it is nice that you can still get a waiver um, for somebody who has the science background and then you can sort of train them up around the, the classroom practice. Yeah, and I was lucky to have a, a, a pretty supportive department there, too. You know, some other chemistry teachers that took me under their wing because, you know, I knew chemistry, but I didn't know how to teach chemistry and probably made some safety decisions that weren't great as a, as a first-year teacher. Um, but they, I, I was able to take it in steps that year. And, you know, I only had one prep, and I had one fewer section of kids. And so it was, like, it was almost like student teaching. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've said that my first year of teaching, I, I took an 80% teaching position uh, before yeah, I was exactly. before I was certified. And uh, mine was not only one prep, but it, it was a little bit less than a full-time job. I was taking classes on the side and, you know, working towards that certification. And um, I, just similar to what you said, I, I had tremendous support around me. And that tr support around me was what really allowed me to, to get everything done that I needed to get done. Um, and sort of go on that path. But I would also say that I made mistakes. You know, this is year 21 for me in the classroom. So uh, I've made mistakes up to yesterday um, in the classroom. <laughs> or I, I've, I've been less than perfect every day for 21 years. So, um, but I know what you mean, that the first few years, that there's you're, the volume of mistakes you're making when you look back is, it's amazing that they got through. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> It is and one nobody of those, got hurt. <laughs> yeah, nobody got hurt. Uh, it is one of those wonderful things, though, about teaching that I, I think that you pretty much can always stop and think and go, all right, what am I doing and what could I do better? And then it's kind of like overwhelming how many things you can do better, like always. Um, but uh, it also is this place where the kids are remarkably um, sharp and resilient. And if you have the best interest in heart and they have the best interest in heart and you can sort of build a little community, they help you get through. Um, yeah, I certainly think yeah. that in some of my early years, the kids are the ones who dragged me through some of the things more so than me dragging through them through. They they guided me by telling me, no, this isn't working or this is working and just being able to listen to those pieces. So, yeah, that's great. Yeah. And so you said you were studying uh, some pretty in-depth stuff. So you were, I know that you were doing some stuff that's, you know, things that you could possibly bring into the classroom, um, you know, some of the modern immunology techniques and that sort of pieces. So do you find that you're tagging some of those and bringing those examples in, um, either illustrative examples for students or, you know, uh, literature sources or other things that might help, you know, spark their interest? The most direct connection that I can make uh, absolutely is now that I'm able to teach biotechnology because everything that we do in biotech is something that I did, you know, learned how to do working in the lab and made a lot of mistakes working in the lab. And <laughs> so now I know what to look for and what, you know, what to tell the kids to look for when doing that. Um, but I, I think one of the bigger thing, you know, more abstract things that I get from my time in the lab is the, how science works, mm -hmm. science process. Um, when we, I, in the lab, I studied Ebola and we were trying to manipulate um, an immune molecule called MBL, which is mannose binding lectin. Mm -hmm. And the idea was if you could um, isolate the mannose binding lectin or some version, some, some genetically engineered version of it, that that would stimulate the immune system to respond to the Ebola virus before it even knew what it was. Mm -hmm. So um, we were actually on a biodefense grant. So the idea was that somebody was going to aerosolize Ebola and blast it into the New York subway system. Mm -hmm. um, and that we could give people this immune molecule and, you know, rev up their immune systems to, to fight it without even knowing that it was Ebola. Um, we, when we were doing the viral assays and mixing our, our drug with Ebola, we actually found that it made the infection worse. 
yeah. <laughs> the, the mice were dying faster. Yeah. And in a test in the, you know, in our little, you know, 12 well plates, um, the, the cells were dying faster. And the, the um, doctor that I was working with kept saying, that can't be right. Do it again. Well, that can't be right. Do it again. Well, that can't be right. Do it again. Yeah. And this isn't just a one hour thing. It's, you know, weeks of growing the cells and plating yep. the cells and putting the virus down. And then, you know, six o'clock Friday night, you're, you're adding the luciferase enzyme to make it glow in the dark. And well, that can't be right. Do it again. And I said, at what point do you keep getting negative results that you decide that maybe there's something else going on here yeah. that we don't know about? Um, and what we came to find was that the, the drug that we were working on um, was actually an opsonin. And okay. liked to stick to Ebola and make the cells eat it faster, uh, which killed them faster. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think that, that that kind of, you know, like it often does, science had other things in mind mm -hmm. for what we were actually trying to study. And I think that that message is important to kids that, you know, what, what you see in science actually has a lot more of a story behind it. That what you, you know, what you get as your conclusion may not have been what you were trying to study in the first place. And, you know, for every paper that comes out, how many negative results did they get um, to, you know, to get them to that point. And I, I think that's the, the bigger piece that I can extend to all my classes beyond just, you know, the, the pipetting and the ELISA and you know, everything that goes around with biotech. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating, um, I'm starting a project with my students right now. And um, in it, we, we did an ecology project and this was my honors kids. Um, so they have very little experience running laps, like very, very little. And we we did a project where we looked at local ecosystems in the first quarter. And then we build off of that where they, they take aspects of that and generate a question and then design just a, a little mini experiment that will run over a few weeks. And then they do, we do a mini science fair, basically. It's it's their term two project. But it's enormously open-ended because it's like, all right, you guys all went out and you made these observations. And now we want you to come up with a scientific question, independent variable, dependent variable. Um, and that, and, and we sort of let them go. And we, you know, meet with them. They're in small groups and, and um, we give them some certain materials. So like I got a tank of duckweed in my room and I have, you know, uh, I stuff to make little mini Winogradsky columns and like a lot of stuff where they can do various uh, modeling. And um, it's so interesting to them that they'll do things and then they don't work. And they used to be crestfallen. Like the first time we did this, like that was the thing that I got shocked by. They they couldn't handle the failing. They couldn't handle the bombing out <laughs> that they would do. And um, and so like now I, I make a point of when I introduce the project, I say, by the way, I expect most of you guys will run this and at least some of your samples will completely not work and you'll have no idea why and you'll be frustrated and you'll reset it up and you'll try it again and you won't really say why and you may not know how to grow plants and you're going to be frustrated. Why can't we grow plants? <laughs> uh, you know, because I've got like grassy and I've got fast plants and I've got all these different things or like your positive controls will die. You know, your control samples that you set up with are, which are duckweed with nothing else in them and all of those will die and you'll be like, wait a minute, how, then what do I have to compare to? So I like preface that and I, I found myself this year, I think I've already told them four different times that I completely expect some of your projects, you will try this and then you'll redo it and then you'll redo it and the project is due in a month and you will try four different times to make this work and you will get zero data and you will have to write up a poster that shows zero data and you can still get an A. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, and so many pieces of that are so hard for them that they don't even know how hard it is for them until they're, you know, they're in the, the thick of it. Yeah. And I tell them like 90% of science is working out materials and methods. And then I tell my AP kids, I was lying to them. It's way more than 90%. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that like you spend, you get this grand idea and then you spend like, I mean, I did this a couple summers ago. You have this grand idea and you're like, yeah, I really want to show this. And then I spent like entire, well, the entire summer plus an extra two and a half months <laughs> trying to get the baseline to work so that I could do my grand idea. And I, it didn't work. You know, it just, it wasn't enough time. And, and that's why people take seven years sometimes to get their doctorates is because, you know, it, it takes a long time. You may have the most brilliant idea and brilliant model, but as you said, science has its own ideas sometimes. So. Yeah. The, I just had my friend, uh, got her PhD in immunology in the, um, in the spring from Dartmouth and her dissertation was delayed because like she didn't have any data. And yeah. I went to watch her, her thesis defense and half of her presentation was, and in fact, we found that this has no effect on this. Yeah. And here's another graph. And in fact, this has no effect <laughs> on this. It's just <laughs> that that's what happened. Yeah. That's, it can be extremely frustrating. Um, I, obviously the higher, much higher stakes there, but I think it's, it is such a valuable thing to talk to the kids when they're younger about that. Yeah. It can like, it still can be engaging and interesting even when it doesn't work and that working through that process is so valuable. And I actually hope 
that by moving away from that reductionist view that we've had of, of science labs, um, where like, all right, here's this lab, and we're going to do this lab, and you know, taking chemistry as an example, um, you know, we're going to do this reaction, and we know when this reacts with this, we get this, and you're going to mass this out, and you're going to tell me the percentage reaction, and bang, like this is the, I'll tell you exactly how it's going to work, and I'm going to tell you exactly all the steps to do, and you're going to get a product when you're done, and I'm going to make sure you guys can all do it. And if you didn't do it, like, what's wrong with you? Why'd you screw that up? Ugh. You know, like that. But but 90% of you will work it first time. And that's just not really scientific. You know, that's just not the way labs work. Um, right. And there's a lot, you know, they it can be content learning that way. But it's going to be a lot less, you know, process of science, practice of science. And it's going to be less trans translational to when they have to answer their own questions. Right. So... All right, so we, we've hit upon a bunch of topics, and we hit upon immunology, and I didn't jump in on immunology because when you said uh, adaptive, you know, versus innate immunity and said innate immunity and nonspecific, I was thinking, well, well, there are classes, you know, there's the fungi class, and the <laughs> there's there's a moderate specificity with the innate immunity because I spent my summer working with fruit flies, which have that <laughs> innate immunity, and they have, you know, yeah. large targets, and that was actually a big part of my project that I was working on was um, doing that, and I spent what was it? We were working on uh, visualization of certain aspects of the innate immunity and, you know, trying to, to get some visuals to go along nice, nice uh, slides of the digestive tract of the um, Drosophila, you know, lit up as I was feeding them various uh, pathogens and stuff like that uh, huh. for a long time that I got very little results on. But um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, I, I know that immunology is there, but in the classes you teach, a little immunology pops up. Um, so when you're teaching the various topics and you get those cross-sectional things like the biotechnology or, or forensics, what are the favorite topics you like to have highlighted for your kids as you're looking at these various classes? I, I'd like any kind of topic that, that allows kids to put together pieces that they've already learned. Because I think a lot of it they might be interested in, but they have trouble seeing, okay, so why do I need to, to know this? And there is a certain, you know, learning how to learn a piece to it that's important. Um, but topics such as cancer, for example, are really interesting to me to teach, not just because cancer will, you know, affect so many of them at, at some point in time, but but also because cancer requires them to understand so many different levels of, of biology. Um, you know, you have the cell cycle and uh, the anatomy aspect to it and the genetic piece to it, both, you know, classical genetics, how those genes are inherited and one, why some people are more susceptible to cancer earlier in life. And then also the molecular genetic piece of it and, you know, how mutations play into it. And I like seeing the light bulbs go off as they realize, oh, that, that's why it happens this way. And that's why this happens this way. And that's why all of these different processes have to happen. I had a um, professor in college who said that he felt that that would be a really good sort of undergraduate um, presentation to have biology students give is to explain how cancer happens and um, because it utilizes so many different pieces of, of biology. So topics like that that has them putting pieces together are my favorite because I like them, you know, see how it all fits together. Yeah, and, and you also do get that opportunity to um... – sort of revisit especially like you know what's in that core content right. yeah so it's um it's a, an interesting way to cycle back i usually think of cycling back that happens within the within a given year um and then sometimes with my ap kids that i had in honors it's cycling back to a topic that i know they saw first time around um but i think in the elective context it may actually have any, a little bit more power because it's going to be a totally new context like i think if you're teaching a cells unit in honors and then you're teaching a cell unit in ap I think there's, it's pretty easy for kids to not have to stretch mentally to make that connection. But if you're teaching a cells unit in biology and then now you're looking in forensics and you're looking at, you know, why is it you need to pull out, say, the white blood cells to get the DNA? And, you know, like you, you start making these very different types of connections that you see. Um, yeah. it, it may make a deeper connection and a, one of those new threads that, that's very different for those kids. Yep. Yeah, so it's cool. All right, so uh, what are you working on right now? What are you doing in your classes as we as we are moving in? This is our, our going to be our, our pre-Thanksgiving episode. So we're we're about a week and a half out from Thanksgiving. This will come out the week of Thanksgiving. So what are you uh, what are you working on right now? So at Andover, we're on a block schedule. So we have one set of courses first semester, and then in January we switch and we get a new schedule. Uh, so I'm exclusively teaching forensics right now. Uh, so we just finished up our blood spatter unit. Mm -hmm. um, where they learn how blood spatter is used to reconstruct events at a crime scene. And we get a little bit into, you know, blood typing with that too. 
um, and we're moving right on into estimating time of death. Uh, uh, so <laughs> talk about the bugs and, and changes in dead bodies over time, and and mm-hmm. how the, the kinds of insects that are present on a dead body and the, you know their stage of development are, are good pieces of evidence in figuring out how long that body's been there. Yeah, yeah. Here comes and, the cheese skipper. Uh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Is it a cheese skipper or a wasp or a blowfly? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's probably one of my, my although it's, it's tough to teach sometimes, um, being sensitive to things that are going on in kids' lives, but it's one of the my favorite units to teach in forensics because they're, they're, um, there's a lot of biological changes that are happening after death, and there are, I like there are math equations that you can do mm-hmm. to solve for different things and and you have to um think about decomposition over time and what's happening with the bacteria and um you know what what gases are the bacteria are emitting that now they're doing research to you know figure out ways to figure out um the the identity of the gases that the bacteria are emitting and what does that say about how long the body's been there so it's mm-hmm. if you can separate yourself from the the ick factor yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's pretty interesting stuff and it's a, a hot area of research too right now yeah, I, I, to me, I would think it's, I, I did teach forensics for uh, a couple of years, many years ago. Um, it was a little bit before I think we had all of the biotech stuff to then, I found that I found it a hard time to make it a very scientific class. Like I felt like I was teaching a, almost like a, a slight history class, uh, slight case studies, and it was good, but it was, I was having a hard time from a materials and methods way of bridging it into being a science class. I felt like I was doing a lot more telling than the kids were doing um, at the time. And so, you know, this is dated. This is probably, you know, nine or ten years ago. And we've we've made some major advances oh, wow. in our, our resources um, in terms of what's available now. Um, but when I was putting it together, I was like, I saw a couple of different pieces. It was just, it, I felt like it was so far away from a science course. And, you know, there's only one body, you know, I, there's only me, I can only be in so many places. And, and it led to me making some choices about how much time I was spending with, you know, core classes and working on core curriculum versus right. the forensics pieces. Um, and it was challenging, but I did find, I completely agree with you about the insects. Um, I am somebody who loves a good detective novel. Um, I love a Case Scarpetta. I love a cat, you know, the Bones books. Like I love those. They, and, you know, that stuff comes up. Time of death with a forensic anthropologist comes up all the time. Um, and so for me, it was like, I read those books. I listen to audiobooks of those all the time. And I'm, those are always popping up for me. So I like, you know, uh, which is uh, there's a Scarpetta book, book called Body Farm, um, in which yeah. it talks about the concept of Body Farm and like what is it. And that I read that, I probably read that in college. I probably read that you know 23 years ago, kind of <laughs> when it first came out, like all that time ago. So for me, that stuff is super fascinating to the point where like I, I probably needed a little bit of uh, a little bit of pause to recognize the ick factor because I like just blow right by it. To me, it's like yep fascinating science, you know, yeah, they're dead bodies, but they're dead bodies. Let's talk about the bugs. Like (laughs) I probably, I probably, you know, a little bit younger was not as sensitive to those pieces, but at the same time, um, I, I'd be really curious. I think there's a lot of cool projects you could do with that. And you could also do a lot of modeling. Like what if you were to take, uh, I know one of my colleagues has domestic beetles, uh, which clean off, uh, the flesh of roadkill. So he did a roadkill project and then basically has a tank of domestic beetles in a hood and at school. And so when kids bring in roadkill, he puts it in there with their domestic beetles and they, and they clean it. And then he remounts the skeletons. So like, I would think it'd be really interesting if you were to take, you know, you could do something like a chicken wing. And what happens if you were to cage a chicken wing out in the woods versus putting a chicken wing in a, you know, a tank with domestic beetles and like, what's the comparison? You could talk about sort of variables. Maybe you take some chicken wings and you wrap them in plastic or you wrap them in cloth or you, like you can start to talk about like what are the variables that would impact the, the time of death, you know, um, the postmortem inter- interval as they call it, you know, how, how could you maybe do some of those pieces? And um, I could really now see, as you're talking about the nature of science, I could see how um, we could use the nature of science to sort of talk about variables that might influence sort of the, the modeling and problem solving that's involved. So, um, yeah, maybe, maybe it makes me rethink. In my spare time, I'll rethink about bringing <laughs> back a forensics class uh, someday. Uh, but, yeah, that's very fascinating. So what I, are you gonna... I can see the, the um, planning piece of it being difficult, especially when you're trying to balance other courses. I've been really fortunate because it's a new course to Andover. It just started two years ago. Um, and 
I've been fortunate that I've been able to focus on that course that I teach only forensics in the first semester and then second semester is forensics and, and biotechnology. So I'm not, knock on wood, I haven't been pulled in, in too many different directions. So I've been able to focus on developing the course and, and getting involved in more activities. And um, part of that has been collaborating with other teachers that have taught forensics. And then also the um, textbook that we have, I can't remember the author's name, but it has a lot of um, really great activities in it so that we don't spend a whole lot of time taking notes. And I try to do less of the telling and, and we spend time um, doing the activities in yeah. class. So it's, it's good, um, especially on a block schedule where the kids are in there for 82 minutes, that there's always something that I can get them up and doing mm-hmm. rather than sitting for 82 minutes. Yeah. Um, but it, there is a balance in there, too, of finding hard science in forensics. And I think that's a lot of, there's stuff um, that, that I see online all the time about, you know, the, the government is saying that we need to ramp up our, our actual forensic science piece of it and that we're finding that this analysis is too subjective and this can be interpreted too many different ways. And, mm-hmm. and actually, you can't say that about that kind of blood spatter. Um, finding that we've put too, maybe too many people in jail based on bad, bad evidence. Yeah. Um, but I think as we, if once this country decides that they want to be better at it and they throw more money at the research, I, I think we'll, we'll see a lot more of it. So yeah. I guess in, in the same way, talking about the nature of science, it's, it's interesting to tell the kids, you know, these experts aren't trying to put people away yeah. for the wrong reasons. They're doing the best that we can. Just like when we thought the world was flat, you know, the, those experts were doing the best that they could. And yeah. these guys are also doing the best that we can. We're just finding over time that it, that analyzing the evidence in that way doesn't work the way that we thought it did. Yeah, there are, it's a good idea of talking about, you know, all science really we have is a degree of modeling and how advanced the model is and how sophisticated the model is, is going to vary. So um, as we learn new information, we have to refine the model. And unfortunately, there can be a lag between our best understanding in that model and you know, what is going on in court. Um, and I think that's, I think it's frustrating from a science standpoint, but I think it's also frustrating from a, um, you know, from a, a civic duty standpoint, I think for people as well. So, yeah. yeah. So we try to, you know, I, the reason the course was started, uh, not only just that forensics is interesting to kids, but it's the problem solving piece of it and that they can integrate the biology and the physics and the chemistry as they're thinking critically about the, the evidence and how they're going to make the pieces fit together. So there's, it's, it's more about the, the science process in that course than necessarily the, the scientific uh, validity, I guess, at this point of, of a lot of the evidence that's out there. We tried that. You talked about the modeling. The, um, there's an activity in the book that says you're supposed to go out into the woods with a piece of liver mm-hmm. and watch the flies over time come lay their eggs and the eggs yeah. develop into <laughs> larvae and, and <laughs> uh, document those changes over time. But, and we tried it a few times and Nothing was eating the liver. Except one time we had a raccoon, I think, that came and took it away. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, speaking of variables. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, it's, I, I know at the time of year will have a big impact and that sort of thing. Um, I know a group that tried something similar at, at my high school. And it was like, I don't remember who the group was. But they were able to, I think their first attempt or their first plan, that, that's exactly it. They put something out and they thought they had, like, anchored it or whatever. It was gone the next time. <laughs> it was like, yep, so it definitely worked. Some critter enjoyed the snack. Thanks you very, thank you very much. But I think, you know, like a lot of the labs that we run, I think you have to run it a few different times. you got to try it out and you got to sort of collect some data and, and, and troubleshoot it a little bit. So, um yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing. Uh, the one thing I had joked, I joked around with a colleague of mine who teaches history that I would like to teach an interdisciplinary class someday. Before I retire, I'd like to teach an interdisciplinary class. And one of my ideas would be to run a project called the Innocence Project, where you could balance the, you could get somebody who is adept at teaching the, the social studies components of criminal justice and law and those components. And then you can bring in the science and teach the science in in the perspective there, and talk about you know the strengths and weaknesses of the scientific model, the strengths and weaknesses of the criminal justice at the time. Um, you can talk about implicit bias. You can talk about. I think there's so many things that you could tie in that would have both a uh, a neuroscience component as well as the forensic science component. If you had somebody who was a sounding board as well, who was doing you know the the social sciences, the the component as well, and I think that could be a really powerful elective for kids, you know, especially a junior or senior, as you talk about kids putting things together. Um, I don't know when I would put that together, but that was... <laughs> in your spare time. 
Yeah, but after yeah after teaching the forensics for a while and feeling very sort of dissatisfied with myself at the time I was teaching, it was one of at least three preps, um, and I really one of those was I was teaching an online version of one of the two classes I was teaching, so really it was four I was teaching the forensics. So I was I was heavily divided, trying to build this up, probably a little bit of ahead of t- my time, both on the online course. And in the forensics course, like <laughs> from a resources standpoint, uh, it was I felt spread very, very thin that year. Um, a sort of one of those things every once in a while you get yourself a little overextended and you learn a little bit about things that way. And that was what I that was one of those years where I learned a lot about myself in terms of learning what overextended feels like. And <laughs> yeah, and it's hard to do anything well. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I think back on it because I do think that it would serve some kids well, um, especially as we look at some of these NGSS things that we're looking to roll out in Massachusetts and, and sort of the problem solving based ideas where you could hit some of those in forensics in a different way than um, you do in a traditional biology class. I think because it's a new course, you're a little less shackled by how you roll things out. And I think that that provides a little opening, which is interesting. Um, and being the only one that teaches it. Oh yeah. Well, that's got pluses and minuses. The pluses, you know, you know, the pluses are that you get to control it. Uh, once you get it up and running though, having that, not having that sounding board within the building who you can talk to on a regular basis, that's tough. Um, so yeah, it it helps. I still have other people around that have taught the class that I can work with, but, um, yeah, you're right. Having somebody that's going through it at the same time would, would also be nice sometimes. Yeah. All right, so um, we've talked a lot about forensics, and I mentioned in the intro um, that you do all these extra things to connect beyond the walls of the classroom. Um, and I'm, I'm curious about, like, how you make those connections uh, to create those opportunities for your curriculum. Like, what's your process when you want to connect your forensics class to a group outside? Um, so in starting forensics, I really didn't know a whole lot about the area at all. And, and one of the first suggestions that somebody had who had taught the course in a different school was um, that the Andover Police Department just being down the street from the school would be a great place to bring the kids. And I, I, I don't remember who reached out to who first, um, but when I did get in touch with the detectives, they were um, really excited to, to have us. And um, they had me come down and we took a tour and said, oh, this would be good for the kids and this would be good for the kids. And um, have been good at taking in, we'll spend a day going down there. So I'll bring one of my classes down and they get their tour, you know, with just 20 of them at a time. And then they go back to school and I bring the next class down and they get their tour and they do part lecture talking about their work, um, talking about how different kinds of fingerprinting works, um, talking about the basics of their investigations. And then we go in and do a tour of the police department and they get to see um, the evidence garage where, for example, if a car is uh, stolen, they'll bring the car into their evidence garage and fingerprint the whole thing. And mm-hmm. uh, they have other pieces of evidence in there, too, that, that kids can look at. The, the big thing that they do down there is fingerprinting. So I think that's why I keep talking about fingerprinting. Yeah. Um, and they have the, the booking room that kids can see. There was one time <laughs> we went down there. One of the classes got to see the booking room and the next class didn't get to see it because somebody had been arrested <laughs> and was actually in a holding cell at the time. Yeah. Uh, but they have the scanner down there, so a kid gets to have their fingerprints scanned in, and um, mm-hmm. they get to see the holding cells, and so they really like that too. Um, so what I think we just have a really great community that's willing to work with the schools, is eager to work with the schools. So that's part of it. And then uh, the other big trip that we went on was to Pfizer, mm-hmm. which is actually in Andover, and um, they, in a lot of ways, have been good to the school, working with different groups there. But uh, last semester, one of my students' dads works at Pfizer and, and offered to have us come in. And uh, But we had to come in on a Saturday mm-hmm. because, you know, everything's in, in full operation during the week. And um, so he had a, his dad got a few people from, from Pfizer to meet with us and take us in different groups to see different parts of the facility and to see the giant, you know, cell, cell vets, you know, thousand liter containers that they have going there. And yeah. Um, so that was really cool too. That's neat. So yeah, we do a, a job shadowing project where we send out our older kids um, out to different places, and it is a, a massive coordination <laughs> to get those type of opportunities. But you're right; the strength of the yeah. community is what drives it. Um, the vast majority of the sites that I send people to um, are connected to either current or former students, meaning parents of students who I had four or five years ago 
who work for a biotech company, who work for a hospital, um, you know, who work for various places, because there are lots, as you sort of said, it's hard to get people in midweek, and it's a lot easier to send, you know, three, four kids, or in some cases one kid to a place as opposed to a larger group. Um, but it, it is the strength of the community and the individual people who take the time and the effort and energy to get permission to let kids in, to show them all that, that piece. It is a, it's a very uh, fortunate piece to, to get in there. Um, so are you like, you know, is this one of those cases where do you actively seek those things out or has it just been a fortunate nature of the, the community that you're working in that that's just, that's just sort of the, things, the way things work in your town? Well, it's a little bit of both because you have in the back of your head, you know, how can I make this more real world? And everybody likes to go on field trips. Um, so it's a little bit of, you know, finding each other. But then, of, of course, you have to decide whether you want to pursue it or not. And there, so it's people reaching out with ideas and mm -hmm. me being new to the community, realizing, oh, that is a good idea. I've only been at Andover. This is my third year there. Um, yeah. So it, it's a little bit of both. Yeah. Neat. All right. I think we've got a pretty good background on you as a teacher, uh, but I'm curious. Uh, I'm going to flip my questions on you a little bit here. Uh, and so what are you looking forward to in the next couple of years um, uh, in your classroom? So at Andover right now, we're on a block schedule. And this is this is the hot topic right now at the school is that they've been <laughs> researching for a long time how to get on to a different schedule. Um, part of the problem is our school day is so short that we're kind of limited in the options that we have to make sure we still meet that time on learning. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the personal personalization that I think would come with a full year schedule is, uh, one of the biggest reasons that we need to get onto a full year schedule. And at this year we were supposed to switch to that full year schedule and, um, something happened that the, the finances didn't work out and we weren't able to do it, but it's, it's really hard to, to get the kids in September and then, you know, you're kind of uncomfortable with each other until about Christmas time, I think. Um, so just about the time you get comfortable with each other, then it's, you know, January and the, the classes switch, especially in the position that I'm in where I teach um, mostly seniors yeah. and some juniors too. But then I get a new crop of seniors in, in uh, January and they're gone at the end of May. Yeah. It's time to get to know each other. So that's, that's the biggest thing that I'm looking forward to is getting off of the block schedule so I can get to know the kids a little bit better. So it just feels like we're on this hamster wheel getting to know each other and then they're, they're gone. It, um, it's, yeah, that's hysterical that you just used the word hamster wheel because we are in a very similar place in terms of looking at our schedule, but in the exact opposite. So we have, our, my school did not go to a block schedule of any kind. We are in the same eight period day, 47 minute periods that they've pretty much always been. I've been at, at my school for, for 17 years and we have... A, it, we have a six-day cycle to accommodate some labs and gym classes and some alternate day things. Uh, so, like, for example, chemistry and physics meet eight periods in a six-day cycle. So you'll have, like, period three, chemistry, and then on days A and C, you'll have lab. Um, and in AP Biology, I get, one, I get one extra class per seven. So I teach seven periods per six-day cycle. So I have, like, lab on day E or day F. So it's like a little bit confusing, but for the most part, unless you're in teaching a lab class or unless you're teaching gym, you see the same kids at the same time for 47 minutes. And we've been talking about sort of the pacing and the stress of our schedule and how the kids like have all this stuff to do and they, they pack all these classes in and the word hamster wheel has come up because the kids are <laughs> just, they're like running, they're running from one place to another the pacing seems so out of control and it seems like there's got to be a middle ground <laughs> between what we're doing and what you guys are doing in terms of like, how do you both allow students to establish those relationships without having them feel like they've got to pack all this thing, these things in a day. So uh, we're a little behind, like they're, we're, they're talking about a few different pieces. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff going on in our school where we're talking about schedule and schedule impact. We're also uh, looking at possibly a later start time. Um, that's a conversation that has come up a lot with um, the sleep data that we've had about our students. Our students get almost like it's it's a, a embarrassingly low amount of sleep. Um, they they just surveyed them, and it's like I think our kids they're they're recommended to get like eight to nine or something like that, or eight to ten, and like our kids average just over six um, at the high school. So what time do you start? Seven twenty three. Okay. Uh, so real early. I mean, we're one of the, there's a couple of schools I know that start a little bit around the same time or earlier, but 
not a lot of people start that early. Yeah. Um, yeah. We start at 745. Yeah. And yeah, that's, you know, it's a slight shift, but it's, you know, that half hour could make, you know, or 20 some odd minutes, it could make a difference. Um, so there, there's multiple pieces, multiple moving pieces about it, but it's interesting to hear you got, you talk about schedule and how people are looking at schedule there. The same conversations are happening here. I don't know that we'll see anything dramatically different next year. Um, although I wouldn't be shocked if we start to do a few pilot weeks of some things or, or that sort of thing. I, it, it's bubbling up and it's been something that I've been saying for years because I hate our schedule. <laughs> I think like the number of times where my problem is twofold. One, I think 47 minutes is just not enough time. It's just like, right. it, it, it's a sprint. And so, um, you know, it's great. If you want to stand in front of the room and talk at kids and lecture, it's, it's perfectly efficient. I remember teaching when I first came to AB, I went from a four by four block schedule where we had 90 minute periods and I had to plan those 90 minute periods. I taught some lower level classes. I always had three different things I would do with all my classes and that, you know, nothing longer than a half an hour because my low level chemistry, my low level biology, like you could not <laughs> talk at them for more than 20 minutes at a time. So, um, yeah. I, I used to have to do massive planning. My planning was so intricate and so detailed and made sure I sh shifted and transitioned to differentiate and that stuff. When I came to AB, it was like, I don't have to prepare. I, I, all I have to do is stand up and talk about cells for 47 minutes. I could riff on that. This is jazz. Like, <laughs> you, right. you know, like I just prepare the slide decks, prepare the PowerPoint, and then just roll through it. And I'll get through as much as I get today and as much tomorrow. But unfortunately, I think that there's a, you know, I'm not somebody who's very satisfied with that model. Um, it ended up feeling like I was teaching the way I was taught in high school um, for my biology, and I didn't love biology in, class, in high school. I, I found it to be a lot of, like, learning a bunch of facts and spitting a bunch of facts back. It was not, I was not engaged in biology in high school. Um, in spite of how nice my teachers were and how good they were, it felt like the lights would go off and they'd pull out the overhead and she'd write on an overhead and we'd write it down in our notebooks and then we'd have a test in a couple of weeks, you know. Um, right. So for me, I, I feel like the schedule that we currently have promotes that teacher-centered room in a lot of ways because it's so little time and it's really hard to do much else, like, you know, or you have, to, it's really, it, you have to be pretty creative to do other things, so. Yeah, um, there are some rotating schedules, um, like a, you know, five drop two, where, where kids are signed up for seven classes, and every day they drop two, or yeah. uh, um, I guess when I was at Marblehead, we were on an eight drop two, so yep. kids were signed up for eight classes, and you know, it was a four-day rotating schedule, and you would meet three out of the four days in science classes. One of those three days would be a double lab block, mm -hmm. um, and those were 55-minute periods, and that that was a good amount of time. Yeah. We, yeah there was a new principal that came in that for some reason was – his mission in life was to change the schedule, and people got really angry said, what, what are you doing? We like the schedule. Yeah. Um, but we had a, a longer school day there that gave us that – flexibility. Um, and I don't know that Andover is interested in, in changing the length of the school day realistically because of the buses and the middle schools are on the same schedule. And yeah. um, I, I don't think we're anywhere close to doing that. So we're, we're really limited in our options so that what they're looking at doing is this really bizarre, you can't even call it a rotating schedule because there's no pattern to it at all, but it's an eight day rotation and you see five classes every day and not all the classes are the same length. And mm -hmm. um, it's, it's supposed to help I, you know, so you have a, a different class first block every day. Yeah. So the kids that don't come to first block at least aren't getting hit, missing the same class every day. And, um, that, but some people are nervous because there's no pattern to it. So they're, they're worried about always feeling uneasy about where they're supposed to go next. Yeah. When I was, when I was in high school, we had a eight period, an eight day cycle where you met six and every class got a long block in the eight day cycle. So every class there, it wasn't quite as, Every, there, there were only two, you like basically had a first or a second period, they called them A and B, but you either had A period or B period to start the day, and you always had one at like our G or H to end the day. Um, and this, it, but it flipped sometimes, sometimes it go B, A, sometimes it go A, B, it, like it was an eight day cycle and it made sense and you dropped two and it went through. And I remember, my remnant, I remember I, it, you as a student would learn the cycle and you would learn the rhythm and you would start to plan because you knew when your you knew which days you had your long free period. <laughs> you knew like when you had that two hour block in the middle of the day where you didn't have a class, you know, like, like you, the, to the students, the opportunities and the expectations and how it went was really smooth to the student. 
I, I remember the teachers and my parents and every adult I knew had no idea what day it was, what, <laughs> what was happening next. So I, I think that anxiety from the teacher standpoint there, but I think there is a rhythm to it. I think the most important thing is whoever, you know, whatever schedule you go to, the more buy-in you have from the the people in the group to say, what are the goals? Like, what are, why are we changing our schedule? What is it about our current schedule that doesn't work? And what are oh, we, we trying many to meetings fix? about that? <laughs> yeah. And that's, and it's hard because there's going to be more than one thing. And so I think that's the important part. I, I'm a little hesitant because I taught in a four by four block schedule before, and it really felt like the reason they went to the four by four block did not, was not done in a mindful way. And like when I taught in another school, and I think part of the reason why we haven't changed the schedule at AB is because that I think a lot of good people have looked at it and it's overwhelming that there's not, not been something that has been tipping point enough to push from the quality that we do right now, like compromising that quality, people are not willing to change something because they feel the quality is there. And until the last couple of years where we've started talking about sleep and talking about pacing and talking about these other things have now bubbled up to the point where there is a sense of urgency to say, yeah, we're not doing as good a job as we possibly could. And maybe we should make some of those shifts. So it's, it's an interesting timeline to, to look at um, when, you, when you think about why do you change and making sure you change in a meaningful way. So um, it sounds like you guys are in a similar po- point, just looking at it from a different schedule. Yeah, that it's, it's one thing that I miss about the, the Marblehead schedule is just getting to know the kids. Yeah. You know, I think I kind of make the analogy, I would rather have 10 friends who I knew for 10 years than have five friends for five years and then switch and get five more friends for the next five years. <laughs> yeah. Know everybody longer. Yeah. All right. So, uh, we've talked teaching when you are not in the classroom, what, how do you spend your time? What is What are your days like when Lindsay is not standing in front of the room or talking about bugs? Um. <laughs> Two things that I do for myself. I, I love to run. Mm-hmm. I've run a lot of marathons and congratulations to you. Was that your first marathon? That was my seventh. Um. <laughs> oh, your seventh marathon. I don't, yeah. I don't think I knew that. Or maybe you told yeah. me that at some point. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I like running marathons too. Um, this year, I don't have a whole lot of time for marathon training because I have a three-year-old and my husband's uh-huh. actually a first-year teacher. Oh. <laughs> um, so between also say, taking care of the first-year teacher, um, oh, yeah. there's not a whole lot of time for marathoning. Yeah. Um, but, but my three-year-old is great. She's a lot of fun and she's in the pretending phase and she plays dress up all the time and runs around and sings. And um, so she's a lot of fun and, and she helps me make dinner. We like to cook and bake together. Yeah. That's great. The family balance part is you know, something that comes up uh, with so many teachers that I talk to. And, um, and so it's wonderful to have, you know, fulfilling things outside that you want to do. <laughs> and a three-year-old is great. Uh, you know, my two, I have two boys and they're definitely much older, but, um, you know, we've been planning, looking forward to planning up a school vacation for next year and getting everybody involved and talking about that. And they're in a different part of their life but it's been so much fun like now that we've sort of set some things up and we're planning you know all right so when we go here we're gonna have a little bit of time what do we want to do what are the options and getting them involved and it's really good and I think it keeps you fresh for when you do sit down and focus on your classroom stuff um, that you have this meaningful time outside where you can sort of you're not beating beating your head against the wall trying to fix the problems in the classroom or how to teach a little bit better Um, maybe not with working with the first year teacher maybe we're maybe we're (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Maybe when you're not in the classroom, you're you're helping the first year teacher uh, solve that. But yeah, but yeah, it's a it's it is good, and the, they they grow up fast, so that three year old will not be three long. So well, and that's that's you know part of why we went into this too is to have a little bit of that balance, even if it is trying to cram in still too many things. Um, yeah. it, it's good to have time for those other things. Yeah, and I uh, yeah, you talk about the marathon training, I. I don't know how I, I, I ran two this past year. I ran two marathons. Um, I ran one in, in March and then I, 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 ra- I raced a marathon in March and then I finished a marathon <laughs> about a month ago, uh, which was, I was not a race. It was one of those kind of things where both mentally and physically I was, I was grinding to get to it. And when you get into that, you said you like to run marathons and, um, <laughs> I, like to, I, I don't know that like is the right, I keep running marathons and I keep wanting to get better at them. Uh, I like training. I like some aspects of the training and I like my friends who run and I like the community of runners. Um, 
But it's I have I think I have learned, and I will forget this lesson. And three years from now, somebody will pull me aside and say, "I thought you said you weren't going to run two marathons in a year." Right. I like running like one marathon. I can focus on one marathon, and I can do one marathon. But I need to take breaks between them. Um, <laughs> you know what you need to do. What I did in the spring was I ran Boston in April, and then a friend wanted to run Vermont, which is um, you know five weeks later. Yeah. May. And it was great because I recovered from Boston and then I, I don't know, I went for a couple runs and then I just ran Burlington like it was nothing. Um, <laughs> you just put them closer together and then you can do two. Uh, I, I don't know about that. So I, I probably could have run a second marathon after my March marathon, but most of the time, but the marathon training just eats me up uh, time wise. And usually when I'm done, yeah, I'm like, you, for sure. Yeah. Uh, before we get to our picks of the episode, uh, do you have any questions for me? How did you get into teaching? Um, I, uh, sort of stumbled into it. I went, um, as an undergraduate for biology and chemistry at, um, at UMass Amherst and I graduated in 96 and I had applied to graduate school to the graduate school of education. I had done some high school tutoring and, um, I had been told by several people I had a pretty good knack for interacting, interacting with teenagers. Um, I worked in this tutoring program where we'd go into a high school and meet with, uh, meet with kids and help them tutor in whatever subject area we did. Um, and so whenever I would go to the high school, like kids would leave me notes, I'll be in the library this period, or they, I had a schedule where I would go and I had developed relationships with a lot of kids and I just would go in and volunteer and tutor. And, um, <laughs> I was in this group of all the people who went to the same school and we'd go and we'd meet for like a Monday night class and it'd be there. And I think everybody in the group hated me because they would go and they'd sit in the library and nobody would talk to them. And for whatever reason, whatever it is that it's in my personality, um, I have always got along with teenagers, whether I was... 21, 22, or, you know, 41, 42, I, I kind of always have been able to relate to them. Um, and so I thought, well, maybe teaching. And then I applied to a very specific program that got gutted down to nothing. Um, they went from like 25, 26 people that they had a year, maybe even closer to 30. I think they only had like four or five spots the year that I started graduate school. So I didn't get into this program that I'd hoping to go. And so the summer before I was supposed to start graduate school, I just started applying for teaching jobs. And somebody hired me. So uh, <laughs> I started teaching 80%. And I had a very fortunate first year where I had a wonderful department where I was the youngest person by much more than a decade. Um, and I had basically six mentors in that department who took care of me and modeled what it's like to be a professional. And, and really, everyone was sort of looking out with me uh, for me. I Part of it was like a group of mentors and uh, part of it was like a group of mom and dads because um, <laughs> of the age difference that I had a group of people who really took care of me and sort of set me on the, the right path. And you know, I've been, I've had ups and downs. I've taught, I taught in four schools in my first five years teaching. Um, you know, uh, I jumped, I bounced around to a couple of different buildings, but when I went to AB, I kind of knew what I wanted at that point. I knew the type of place I wanted to teach. Um, and, uh, you know, there's advantages and disadvantages, but it's, a, it's been very fortunate for the group of people I've gotten to work with um, over the last few, you know, like a few, 17 years I've been working with the same group of people. It's been, it's been pretty wonderful. So that's, that's, great. The, that's the short story. Um, <laughs> but how I've stayed in it and all the other ups and downs, there's been so many ups and downs over the last few years. Last few years have been mostly ups, but uh, yeah, I can think back to some of those early years and how hard it was to get through some of those early years. It was, it was definitely tough and challenging, you know, having, having teaching positions eliminated at schools, you know, um, <laughs> you know, which that happened to me at one school and, um, you know, I worked in several schools that didn't have much in the way of resources. Uh, I'd say my first three jobs, my first three jobs were, were low resource schools where it's a very, it's tough because you want to do your best for the kids but at the same time. It makes it really hard to do your job. Absolutely. Uh, so, um, yeah, and I, t I did teach in Winthrop, which was in the Northeast conference, uh, with you, uh, in Marblehead. <laughs> yeah. So we didn't, we didn't overlap, but, uh, cause I was out of there by then, but I do know Marblehead because of my time in the Northeast conference, uh, over there on the water. <laughs> Winthrop has a very interesting cross-country course down on, is it, is it Deer Island? Yeah, yeah. At the water treatment facility? Yep. yep. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that they were Wait, running where there. Are you right now? I don't know. If, I'm trying to think. I don't know if they even had a cross-country team when I was there because I was a soccer coach. It, and It's small, but they, yeah, they have one I now. think that started after I left there, um, which I, makes a lot of sense, but I don't think that it was there when I, because they were very, sports were important, but they were small. We had not many, I mean, it's a tiny school, as you know, it's, um, but it's good to hear they have a, that's a, I, I used to take that tour out there when I was a teacher all the time. It's great science connections out on the, out on the island. Yeah. So. Yeah, it was really cool. Uh, same thing with the resources. When I left, I left Marblehead because we moved um, off of the North Shore and 
I, I didn't know what I was looking for. I just knew that I needed a job that wasn't in Marblehead. Yeah. Um, and I, I didn't necessarily know what I was looking for until I found it. It was when I went to the interview at Andover and I met the, you know, the other teachers that were, were interviewing and the um, program coordinator, Steve Sanborn. I just, just felt like, like, this is it. This is my home. This is where I want to be. You know, I, I understand these people and not even knowing necessarily the, the number, the wealth of resources that I would walk into and the support for professional development and, and all of the grant opportunities. And, um, you know, for example, being able to go to the Museum of Science last year to, to learn more about BioBuilder as a professional development day was, mm-hmm. like, this is my life now. This is awesome. Yeah. Um, it, it really helps to be in a supportive school with, um, we're really fortunate to have Steve in our program too. Um, he's, he's our fearless leader. He's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I know that when I made the change, I I needed to go to a school that was like the school I went to. Like I needed a, as much as I relate to teenagers of all sorts of types, there I went to a school which was very academic, um, very driven kids, um, very the, the community really looked at the teachers as like highly sought after professionals. Like the teachers were, the teachers ran the building that I went to as a high school. Like the administrators were, had to manage the fact that they could really couldn't push back against certain teachers because the teachers drove that building um, and were very highly esteemed. And, you know, the couple of, couple of buildings I worked at before, they just weren't, I didn't see the teachers as getting that same, that same level of respect and, um, and, you know, the number of teachers who had, like, a second job to help put their kids through school, you know, the set had to, they were leaving to go do this other thing that they would then spend, you know, 35, 40 hours a week working on. And I was like, how are wow. you working on your, how are you working on your teaching? Like, if you wow. leave this job and then you go into Home Depot, and these were not people going to work for educational consulting. They were going to work for Home Depot or they were going to waitress or they were going, they were going to do something else to help make, you know, make ends meet. Um you know, or going to work at this place. I mean, you know, the thing, I don't know if you've ever read Horace's Compromise, which came out many, many years ago. um, And it's over on my bookshelf uh, right now. But it it basically talks about this English teacher who works in a liquor store. And I remember being in two of the buildings that I worked in where I looked around and I felt like I was surrounded by these guys who wanted to be good teachers, who worked the best they could. But because of life circumstances and the way that the the communities were necessarily treating them and you know their responsibilities they weren't necessarily doing those things and I when I left uh, to come to Acton I there were a handful of places that I was like all right I'm going to one of these places <laughs> because I want to go to one of the places that's like kind of where I grew up um, and and I think uh, I, when I talk to teachers who are doing sort of the exciting thing like you know things like you do where you go and make these connections and do all these things it is really cool to hear um, hear that there's a lot of schools that are out there doing that and hopefully we can get all schools <laughs> to be like that uh where all teachers can feel that way yeah that's one th- comment that natalie made about teachers being deprofessionalized in in a lot of cases and um that's something that i like both about andover and the biobuilder program is it, it gives you a chance to be the professional that you want to be yeah and you know be more of the teacher that you know that you're supposed to be and uh, so i love that we have that opportunity and Wolbachia too, same thing. The kids love Wolbachia. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I gotta figure out how I'm gonna do that this spring. I haven't, I haven't figured it out. I know it's, I have the supplies in my freezer, but I haven't figured out the tie-in yet. <laughs> so. Right. All right. So we're on to picks of the week. What are your any interesting resources that have grabbed your attention recently? Um, so I think about that because I, I see a lot of different articles out there, and then I heard something on NPR yesterday that that wasn't about the election. Um, it was about uh, why seabirds eat plastic, and I think there was a lot of speculation that they were eating it because they were hungry and there was a lack of other food. But what they found is that the plastic um, have the algae in the ocean adhere to the plastic, and the algae, when they adhere to the plastic, emit um, a DMS compound, a dimethyl sulfoxide, dimethyl sulfur something. Yeah, um, and. Uh, they, the algae usually do that when they're being eaten by krill. Mm. So the seabirds like the smell of DMS because it, it's a signal to them that there's krill in the area. Um, however, when the algae adhere to the plastic, it emits the same smell, and that's what's making the birds eat the plastic. Um, so if you can imagine the scientists doing this experiment where they're, they're taking the plastic and bringing it back to the lab and you know stuffing it in a closed container and, and seeing if they can pick up the DMS smell, um, I think they, they got a lot of flack for that for, for, you know, what are you, you're taking trash out of the ocean and doing what to it? Yeah. Um, 
Right, but I thought that was really interesting in saying, you know, uh, yes, the algae are sticking to the plastic, but of course the plastic is absorbing other stuff in the ocean too, you know, oil and who knows what else. Um, and then there's also the speculation about, you know, we can. it's easier to see birds eating plastic than it might be to see fish eating plastic. Yeah. Um, but, but probably the fish are eating the plastic and then are we eating the fish that eat the plastic that eat the oil? Yeah. Um, but I thought that was a really interesting story yesterday that it just came out. Yeah, I know. And DMS is, if it's DMS, uh, there's DMS and there's DMSO. So DMS is dimethyl sulfide. Yeah, yeah that's dimethyl sulfide. Um, that, it's, that's a distinct sulfur smell. Um, it's an off, uh, it's an aroma that happens in uh, brewing. Um, it's actually, so if you ever brew beer, um, DMS is this uh, organic sulfur compound. It's got a, di- a very distinct smell to it. Um, and so there's a, it's an off aroma and can be an off flavor uh in beer uh so uh it's a it's uh it's actually a chemical that it has a very distinct odor and people have very different um sensitivities to it so like as you're talking about this i was thinking boy you know you could almost do well, i could go for a beer right now yeah <laughs> it's a little, a little early but it is an off day so uh, uh and i don't think you want a dms uh, filled beer so make sure you go there but um <laughs> But I think it's really funny that, like, I, I'm immediately thinking, like, I wonder if you could do experiments where you put different plastics in in water and you could talk about that. But you could also get into a point where, um, you know, odor sensitivity and neurological connections, um, because people have very different sensitivities. It's kind of like that flavor thing where certain people have like they taste the PTC and that's the obvious one and some kids taste it and some kids don't that's a nice easy gene to talk about it but now you expand it out and you go all right when we smell things we taste things we're talking about tons of different receptors there and there's different degrees of sensitivities well these are ultimately proteins and how does that work so you could think of almost like some of the sensory type labs that you do this could be a really nice ecological connection to some neurology and some nice interesting so like it's a cool thing. So I could see ecosystem tie-ins and I could see, um, Oh yeah. And, and too. you know, if you can get the, the algae to make, I, I don't know, something with DMS or something to eat the plastic or, yeah. Oh yeah. Or yeah. to neutralize the DMS. So if you could get yeah. like a, a, a bacteria oh, yeah. that neutralizes DMS, then that what you've got is you've got a potential way of de-attracting these predators. So yeah, there's very some very interesting things, and I think as we look at problem based problem based learning, and we look at um, you know the upcoming shift that we're going to be doing uh, towards NGSS, and you know those performance expectations that we're going to have for kids, and not designing units around like the old topics, but more towards like a larger question or a larger theme, and what are ways of doing that? Um, having these type of hooks and cross connections between things that we traditionally didn't put in the same box, you know, the same unit box, um, are going to be fascinating so that's a cool story yeah ocean plastic is there's a lot in there so all right my uh my pick is totally different um so uh my pick is chalk markers i don't know have you ever used chalk markers no in your class all right do you have big giant black uh lab tables soapstone lab tables in your room yes okay so this is what i found out and i'm not i'm not the person who came up with this but i've seen it i started seeing a bunch of teachers talking about this last year you can go on and buy on amazon and there's like a million different brands and you can actually buy them at uh staples sometimes or other stores uh these things called chalk markers and what they are is they literally write chalk and they are phenomenal at writing on our big giant black soapstone um lab benches and so what i've actually started doing this year is um a couple of times a quarter particularly on days that are like a Friday, like my Friday eighth period class, uh, I found this has been very useful. In, if I have PowerPoint scheduled, I take the PowerPoint, I turn those PowerPoint notes into a series of questions, and I assign six different sets of questions for my kids, and then I put the questions out on the table, and I give them chalk markers, and I let them write right on the tables with the chalk markers to That's answer cool. the question. So I let them do collaborative work together. Um, so I will, I randomize the groups and I put them in groups of threes and fours or in my honors fours or fives because those classes are a little bit bigger. And I give them a marker and then I have them do that. And I give them, you know, eight or 10 minutes to come up with a question. Depends on how complicated the questions are. Um, and then I give them a couple minutes to take their marker and they're all different colors and rotate around to the different stations. And I only give them a couple minutes, but I let them read the question, read the answers and make comments if they want. Like, yeah, this is good, or, oh, you forgot this, or here's another example, or that sort of thing. I give them a couple minutes, and so they talk through in their groups, and then they rotate through, and that only takes about 10 minutes, and then we do a readout. And so I randomize my kids using Popsicle sticks. I know it's very old school, but um, I know there's, like, um, uh, I forget what the program is. Um, 
Dojo. I think there's a Dojo program that you can randomize kids that way. But I, I use Popsicle sticks, so I throw them out. And I walk around, and I pick up, I have them pick at random one of the Popsicle sticks out of the group, and that's my uh, reporter. And that person reports out to the whole class. And then I pull the PowerPoint slides that I was going to go over anyway, and I go in the same order. So it's a really nice sort of jigsaw, a little bit of a, a flip of it. And um, particularly, I've got my, my eighth grade class is really funny, and they're good. Uh, um, they're, they've got a good energy to them. You know, I mean, there's an eighth period class is going to have energy. But this eighth period class I have this year is really good energy. Um, and I think it's real. It's been a really nice match to their personality. But interestingly, my, my fourth period class doesn't have that energy at all. But by doing this thing with them, they've become so much better at group work. Like the first couple times I put them in group work, there was conflicts and there were people arguing and stuff like that. But we've now, you know, now we're in November. I've done this three or four times at this point. And I randomize them, and I don't let them work the same groups, and I make them work with different kids, and I do. And you know, I've noticed the last couple of sessions we've done the group work, they're getting better. They're figuring out how to work in groups. They're figuring out that group dynamic. They're figuring out that piece. And so we're still getting the quote-unquote coverage, but I feel like it's a, a really nice way of doing, you know, a lot of the other important things that aren't the content. It allows right. those things right. to happen in the class. And um, as I said, I, I looked back frustrated a few years ago where I felt like, in a lot of ways using PowerPoint, I was being the teacher that I had in high school, which was always my goal not to be. I wasn't the person who wanted to shut the lights off and put the, put, I mean, it's not an overhead with a marker anymore. It's a PowerPoint slide, but I don't, that's not what I want to be. Like I want my kids engaging with the material. Um, I want them talking to each other and yes, they need to, they have to learn the core competencies and they need to learn how to ask and answer questions but they there's a more than one way to do it and so I was gonna share out my chalk markers this is where if you ever follow me on Twitter on Fridays I'm posting pictures of my kids doing these things so yeah that's really cool we have um you know big portable whiteboards that yeah. that allow for the kind of group work and they like to use the the whiteboard markers on those but this is really cool yeah, this is another, and I was, I was talking to a colleague who was trying this out with his classes, and he's like, yeah, I could see this doing this a couple of times a quarter, because I do think it's the kind of thing where I, it will lose its illust its luster a little bit if you're doing it, like, every Friday, it's Chalk Marker Friday. Like, I, so I've done it, like, a couple of times with my AP kids, and I've done it, I think, three times with my honors kids, and it seems to be right amount. Every two to three weeks, we've done something like that, and I do other things as well. Like, yesterday, we were doing pop beads instead of... Um, this and I didn't pull the chalk markers up, but it was the same idea: group work, working with a model, doing that sort of stuff. And they're getting really. I feel like this this year of all of the years I've taught, I, I feel like my classes have the best sense of community, and the best ability to do group work. And it's happened so much faster because I've really sort of committed to trying different techniques that will let them do those things. So I figured I'd share. Um, they're not they're, they're not cheap, um, but I've burned through a, already a one set of chalk markers this year, and they cost about 15 bucks for them. But you can buy cheaper ones, um, and so I actually just invested in a bigger set that was a little cheaper, um, and I, I don't know how good they are, so I'm hesitant to post the link. But, yeah, there's a few different ones, and, um, yeah, it's, it's a cool thing. All right, well, I kept you way too long, so um, <laughs> thank you again for joining me. No problem. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. And uh, let me just say my uh, my little credits here. So Life of the School comes out uh, twice a month, uh, the first and third Monday of every month. That is usually my target date. Uh, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, uh, Stitcher, or really any place that podcasts are found. Uh, show notes are available at lifeoftheschool.org. Um, I will have show notes for this uh, for this episode and all previous episodes as well. Um, and within those, you can also get links to listen to the SoundCloud uh, audio for those. Uh, you can follow me at, at Mr. Matthew Tweets. Um, we said it's uh, is it AHS Biotech. Yes. You are. So we can follow Lindsay at AHS Biotech. You can also um, follow life, uh, at Life of the School um, on Twitter. And then the other thing that you can do is uh, you can give feedback on the website or through Twitter at any time. So thank you all uh, for joining. And uh, next episode will come out in December. So thank you. Great. Thank you. <laughs>